0: good to see you. That was Adam Radcliffe, our pastoral intern, and my name is Jake Patton, one of the other pastors here at Downtown Prez. And uh, maybe you're here visiting, maybe you're a member of another church, or perhaps maybe this is your your first time in church altogether. Regardless, uh, you're most welcome, and we're glad you're worshiping the Lord with us here at DPC this morning. If there's anything we can do for you, please don't hesitate uh, to let us know Uh, We're continuing our study this morning in the book of Acts. So if you have your Bible with you, uh, let's take it out now and let's turn to Acts chapter six. We're going to be looking at the first seven verses in chapter six, verses one through seven. And while we're getting uh, our Bibles out, if you don't have your Bible with you this morning, no problem. We have it printed for you in the bulletin as well. And while we're getting settled, um, I want to begin here this morning, we've… We've now been in Acts for, for several re- weeks in a row, and we've heard some pretty incredible stories and stories of, of dramatic conversions. And we're not talking about like dozens or hundreds of people being converted to Christianity, but thousands. And what's more is they're being converted after hearing sermons a lot shorter than the one I'm about to give. But thousands of people are converting to Christianity in these, in these early days of the church. And, and maybe you haven't asked this outright, but maybe you've thought it, or maybe you've wondered, like, why, why don't we see mass conversions like this anymore? Maybe they're happening and we just don't, don't see it. But why don't we see more of this happening in the life of the church? Well, there could be several reasons uh, why this is the case. Uh, we're not going to cover all of them. Uh, this morning, but we're, we're going to cover one of them, uh, one reason why this might be the case. So we're going we're gonna to uncover that, but at the same time, uh, this passage is also a call to action. We can actually help, all of us, everybody who, who's hearing and submitting to the Word uh, this morning. So what is it, and what should we be doing? Um, let's go to our text. This is Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of the Lord. whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. O Spirit, long ago you inspired men like Luke and the other writers uh, to put pen to paper and to write these words that would prove to be a, to us a timeless treasure and our very hope. We thank you for that and would ask now that as we read and as we study and as we place ourselves underneath this sacred word, that you'd illumine our minds, inform us, that you'd stir our souls, give us new appetites, new desires, a greater zeal for you, and that you would at, at our very core change our lives. Cause us to serve you more than we serve anything else. Give us a heart for it. And we ask this in the matchless name of your son and our brother, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as pastors, we try not just to read, you know, theology all the time. And so, I've been reading a book about business and been introduced and been fascinated by this, by this word. It's, it's, it's a word that businesses use in their circles, and it's called systems, systems. And it's, that's just a fancy word for creative problem solving. You have an issue within your company or your business, so you employ a system to fix it. It's creative problem solving at its best. And some businesses would say, hey, there are, there are such things as, as good systems, there's good ones, and there's bad ones. Not all of them are good. And this is just my opinion. But here's what I think is a really bad system, right? Let's say you buy a product or a service from a particular company, and you don't know how to use it, and you're confused about something. Well, at the bottom of the brochure, what does it say? Got a question? Do you need assistance? Call 1-800-FILL-IN-THE-BLANK, okay? And so you call the number, and then what do you get on the other line? The automated response service, right? Very, very, very convenient for the business, but terribly inconvenient to you as the customer. Why is that? You know, dial 1 for store hours, dial 2 for store location, dial 7 for migraine, dial 11 to hear this all over again, right? By the time you actually get to someone who can help you, you could have had the problem solved if you talked to a human being in the first place, right? Not necessarily a good system, in my opinion, right? But there are good systems. And here's one I, I heard of recently, and, you know, we're kind of stepping out of the business world, and let's step into, like, the gardening world for just a minute, I was watching a a gardening show on PBS the other day like a normal person like normal people do. And uh, he had a particular problem. He had a very small property. Okay, so not a lot of space to work with, but he liked to grow grapes. He had grapevines. But he had this particular bug in his yard that would crawl up the grapevines, eat his fruit, eat his leaves and pretty much destroy his plant. And he learned pretty early on that these bugs that were on his, his grapevine have a, have a defense mechanism. If you were to agitate the vine or the wire, or the posts where these, these vines were attached, they would kind of curl up in, in, into their, their shell and just fall to the ground. That was their uh, defense mechanism, right? So he'd go out there and shake it, right? And the bugs would fall off, but, you know, in a matter of hours, they would just crawl right back on and keep eating and destroying his crop. Well, over here, he had chickens, And he loved chickens. He loved eggs. But because of where he lived, he didn't have a lot of trees and didn't have a lot of shade to provide for his chickens. So he had a number of problems. Couldn't keep the bugs off his grapevines, couldn't provide shade for his chickens, and was running out of property. Uh, So he sat and he thought and he came up with a pretty incredible solution, uh, a brilliant system. And here's what he did. He took the grapevines and he moved them and he actually placed them on, around, and over the top... Of this new chicken coop that he had made. He made it about seven or eight feet tall, made out of wire, right, in the shape of a box. So he put his grapevines over this box, over this coop, and around it. Doing what? Providing shade for the chickens. And every morning he would come out, and because the vines were so closely a- attached to this cage, he would come out and he would shake the cage. And what would happen to those bugs? They were on his vines. They would, their defense mechanism would kick in. They'd curl up, and they would fall to the ground, except where would they fall? Into the chicken coop. And little did he know, like, chickens loved these bugs. So, with one system, what did he accomplish? He got shade. He got the bugs off of his grapevines, right? And all within a small matter of space and time. Brilliant system, right? Very clever. There's good systems, and there's bad systems. Well, Whether you believe it or not, the church has been employing systems for thousands of years, creative problem-solving, you know, techniques, efforts within the church to help it and to cause it to grow. And, you know, spoiler alert, verse 7 tells us that after they have employed this particular system, that the gospel grew. Disciples in number increased greatly, according to Luke. So, we have some systems that, that actually take life um, from groups, that rob life from from businesses. But here we actually have a system that gives life to it that's, that's very, very helpful. Now, before we kind of jump into this and look at it further, this is a large room full of a lot of people with a lot of different backgrounds. And some of us in, in this room, we're, we're kind of, uh, we have an inner hippie. We're, we're small government people. We, we hear authority and we go, the less authority, the better. Everything that needs to happen in the church or in groups or in government, um, the less authority is involved, the better. Right? We're small government people. And what we need to hear this morning is, is that there are some systems and some forms of authority that are okay and that are good and that actually help. We don't need to be afraid of systems or authority. There's other, uh, others of us in this room, we love systems. We love it. Right? Our budgets are systems. Our family life is a system. Our work is a system. We have graphs and pie charts and databases for everything because we just love systems. But you can over-systemize something to take the life out of it. We're not meant to worship systems. That's not what we're going to hear either. But there's a balance between these two two ends. Um, Okay, so... The apostles uh, in this story, they employ a really good system. What is it? Uh, I want to look at three things uh, this morning. The first point is the problems. Now, notice that is plural, not singular. There's not a problem. There are problems, three of them to be exact. The problems, the service, and then the growing. The problems, the service, and the growing. All right. Well, what are the problems? Well, actually, the story starts out with a very very good problem. Look back at verse 1. Luke tells us that in these days, the disciples were increasing in number. For a startup, the church is actually doing really, really well. It's growing in numbers and with people and with conversions. Now, I understand that this comparison is not exactly apples to apples, but I was looking at a business journal this week because I wanted to find out if if a company starts… In 2017, what's the likelihood that it's going to be sustainable, that it's going to grow and flourish and maintain its business and its efforts? I wanted to know what the percentages were. And what this one business journal said was that you know, if, you start, if you have a new startup in, in 2017, there's a 50% chance in five years that you won't be here, that your business is going to fold, it's not going to be sustainable. And the percentages are even less after 10 years, there's only a 30% chance that you're still going to be around, that you're going to be sustainable, that you'll still be a business. Those are really small odds, aren't they? Now, that's business in 2017. This is church 2,000 years ago, but can't we say the same is true? Like, it's hard to get something up off the ground, to give it energy, to give it capital, and, and for it to grow. And what Luke here is telling us is that, regardless, the church is growing. It's thriving, and it's increasing in numbers. But as we all know, because we've been around the block a time or two, When you get more people in a room from different backgrounds, with different values, and in this case, different languages, what is inevitably going to happen? You're going to get conflict, right? And this is the cultural problem. This is what I'm calling it. It's the cultural problem. We have two groups of people that are kind of in the spotlight here. Did you notice the second part of verse 1? It says, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. And why? Because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The Hellenists are the Greek-speaking Jews in Jerusalem, okay? And the Hebrews are the Aramaic-speaking Jews. Um, so it, we, have a, we have a pretty big cultural gap distance between these two people. There's a, there's a major language barrier. The Greeks had their own synagogues where they worship, and the Hebrews had their own synagogue where they worship. But now they're one church under the apostles, right? And they're trying to figure out how to do life together. And what they've noticed is is that these Greek widows are being overlooked. So obviously there's a program right now in the church to help take care of widows. There's a number of widows in Jerusalem. But it's the Greek widows that are being overlooked, that's the cultural problem. And here is where we would expect, you know, maybe a sermon like James on favoritism, right? Like, some people are being left out. There's, dis- there's discrimination going on, and that ought not be within the church. But there's no sermon here about favoritism or discrimination. And why is that? It's because Luke is telling us there's actually a deeper problem than just a cultural problem, a cultural issue. And that's one of social administration. This is the real problem. A problem of social administration. It's this. The church is growing. It's no longer this mom and pops where one group can do everything, right? It's moving into, into a bigger entity. It's going through growing pains. And the apostles are realizing that, hey, we have been praying, we have been ministering the word, and we've been taking care of widows, and we cannot do it all. There's just too many. And so what do they do? They incorporate a new system and, quite frankly, a very good one. Okay? So what is this, uh, what is this system? What is this service? Uh, jumping into the second point here. And when I was thinking about this point this week, I immediately thought about the movie Jaws, right? The movie with the big shark. And you remember that famous line from the movie, Brody is the guy, the, the owner of the boat and it's the first time in the film you, just, you see the scope of the shark. It is massive. It's the longest shark they've ever seen. It's the biggest shark they've ever seen. And when he gets eyes on it the first time, he looks at the shark, and he looks at his boat, and what does he say? We're going to need a bigger boat, right? He was able to kind of get up and over the situation and go like, our resources aren't going to take care of us here. We need something bigger. In the same way the disciples are saying the exact same thing, we need bigger and better systems. We can't go on this way or we'll sink. We need a better system. Okay, so two things, two points here I want us to see. No cowboys. There's no cowboys here. And no classes. No cowboys and no classes. What does that mean? Well, first, cowboys. Cowboys. Let's go back to high school um, algebra for just a moment and imagine the vertical axis. Okay, we're looking at a line that goes up and down. What we start to see in this passage is the early formation of church authority, right? Some of us just kind of started squirming in our seat. We don't like that word, authority, right? We're naturally allergic to it. But what we start to see is that Jesus Christ, when he left, he gave the keys of the kingdom to the apostles, to the 12. Get to binding, get to loosing, right? Get to leading. But then the apostles realize that we, we can't do everything like we have been doing. People are being overlooked. And this ought not be. Widows ought not to be overlooked because God cares about the widows. And so what do they do? They take the authority that God has been given them, and they give it to these seven men, Right? Look down at verse 6. What does it say that the crowds and the apostles did to these seven men? They presented them to the apostles. They prayed for them and did what? They laid their hands on them. And that's not something that the church does, you know, to be cute or to be sentimental. When you see hands being laid on the Old Testament or the New Testament, that's to communicate to us a transfer of power to the right people at the right time, and for the right reasons, right? The disciples here aren't interested in keeping power to themselves. They don't want to be dictators. There's no cowboys. There's no one-man show here. No, but it's, it's the giving away of authority. It's the giving away of leadership. And this is the sign and the mark of really good leadership, right? It's not keeping it for yourself, but giving it away, again, to the right people at the right time, at the right place, and for the right reasons, okay? And so you start to kind of see this disorder. This the disciples... Everybody's doing this. This is a collective effort of the community, of the people, everybody in the church. This is their consensus. And they give authority to these seven men, right? Okay, so that's, that's the vertical axis, right? There's authority, but how do we know it's the good kind? How do we know this is not a dictatorship or a one-man show or a church full of cowboys? Is because they're giving it away. They're giving this power and this authority away. Okay? Now let's, let's switch gears. Let's go to the horizontal axis. We need to see this as well. Though there is authority, right? Just like there is in, in a business, just like there is in a marriage and family, the buck has to stop with somebody, right? We don't have to fear authority. There is authority in the church. Um, when we look on this horizontal axis and we start talking about this idea of service, of, of spiritual gifts, of serving God and this kingdom, what I want us to see is that there is no class in service. There's no hierarchy of service. Um, th- this word service pops up three times um, in this passage. Um, actually, before I, before I say that, notice what the, uh, the disciples say in, in, in verse 2. Did you pick up on it? And did you kind of go like, man, I think Peter and the other guys are being a little snarky, Right? Look what they say at the end of verse 2. It is not right that we should give up the preaching of the Word of God to what? To serve tables. Now, we're not there. We can't see their faces. We can't hear their tone. But when we read that, we kind of go like, oh, man. I mean, are the apostles kind of saying like, you know, now that we've done what we've done and seen what we've seen, like there is such, you know, there are jobs and tasks that we're too big for, right? We shouldn't be waiting tables anymore. We are the apostles. Do you hear the keys jingling in my pocket? Do you know who I am? That's that's the lens in which we we typically have have read this passage. And and what I want to suggest this morning is is that's not the intent of the apostles. That's not the intent of Luke. Nor is that the intent of the Lord to say that one form of service is more valuable than another. No, there's no class of service. There are no classes. We're all on the same spectrum here. Um, Again, that word service appears three times in this passage. And that word in the Greek is diakoneo. Diaconeo, and that's where we get our word deacon from, and that's an office of service. Uh, the deacons, and that word appears three times, two times in reference to what these seven men are going to be doing, right? And at the end of verse one, it says that the widows are being overlooked in the daily what? The daily distribution. That word in Greek is diaconeo. The widows are being overlooked in the daily service, right? And in verse 2, the, you know, the verse we just looked at, the apostles say, should we give up prayer and the preaching of the word to serve tables? That word is diakoneo. It's, it's to serve. But this, this, this verb appears a third time in verse 4. Look at it with me again. We don't see it in the English, but it's there in the Greek. Verse 4 says, but we, being the apostles, will devote ourselves to prayer and into the ministry of the word. Now, they don't say the preaching of the word. They say the ministry of the word. You know what the word ministry is in Greek in this passage? Diakoneo. As if to say, this is our form of service. The apostles are saying, our job is to serve the word. And these seven, your job is is, is to serve the same God to the same caliber, but just in a different way. Your job is to oversee the widows and the daily distribution of food and make sure that everybody's getting taken care of. You're serving them. We're serving the Word. There is no class of service, all of us. If you call Jesus Christ your Lord and if you've been forgiven by him and if you've been brought into the Father's house and filled with the Holy Spirit, at that very moment you are enlisted into the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't you think for one moment that your service is of lesser value to him than somebody else? I'm saying that this morning because I know not everybody in this room believes that. I know you don't. I've seen it and I've heard it before. You have a favorite pastor, a favorite preacher, and you love the way they serve the word. But then you kind of leave here with your with your tail between your legs kind of going, but you know all I have time for and all I have margins you know, to really do and really offer is just be a, you know, a classroom mom at my kid's school. Don't you dare believe that that's a lesser value, that that's a less service than the ministry of the Word. To some he is called to wait tables. To some he is called to be classroom moms. To some he is called to serve the Word. But there are no classes of service. There are no small acts of service in God's kingdom. So in one sense, this should be, this should be the end of Shame. And all of us just going, man, I can't serve like my favorite preacher. I can't serve like my favorite elder or my favorite deacon. Baloney. Yes, you can. But just perhaps in a different way. It's the end of shame, but it's also the end of arrogance. Maybe you haven't said this out loud, but maybe in 2016, man, you wrote a big check to somebody for something. And your chest is puffing out a little bit because... I did more in 30 seconds than what some people do in a year by writing that check. And you think your form of service is a little bit more important than somebody else's? Don't be confused, friends. There are no classes of service in God's kingdom. To some, He is called to serve the Word. To others, He is called to serve by giving. To others, He is called to serve through tables. It's almost as if Paul has this uh, this very story in mind when he says in Romans, for as one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, then in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who acts with mercy, do it with cheerfulness. On the vertical axis, yes, there's authority. There's different roles, different responsibilities. The buck has to stop somewhere. But when we talk about service, there's no class here. Meaning this, that what you do, though small and insignificant as it may feel to you, is just as valuable as the ministry of the word and prayer. Don't let anybody tell you differently. And so, going back to the original question, what can we do to help? This is our, our call to action. If elders and pastors are doing what they're supposed to be doing, which is praying and preaching the word, and if your ruling elders knew what they're supposed to be doing, and if deacons are doing what they're supposed to be doing, that means you need to be doing what you're doing. This is your call to action. If you are in Christ, he has given you part of his image inside of you. That's what it means to be an image bearer. He has actually given gifts to you. And your job is to find out what they are and employ them to the glory of Christ. And when congregations and when people stop doing that, you know what happens? Nothing. Nothing happens. The gospel doesn't go forth. People's hearts aren't changed anymore. Why? It's because you have the opportunity to reach people that that the pastors and the elders and the deacons cannot reach. In 15 years of, of service to the city, we'll still not be able to reach them like you can because they're your neighbor. They're your coworker. They're your friend. That's where we need you. That's how you can help. I don't want to belabor the point, but in verse 8, after the passage that we uh, were looking at this, this morning, uh, verse 8 begins with the story about Stephen, one of these seven. And uh, Stephen doesn't serve for very long because what happens? He's assassinated. He's martyred. Stephen, the waiter... The table server is killed. Now, if you were going to try to destroy the church at this stage in the game, who would you go for? Who would be the strategic people that you would go for? Because we think there's a hierarchy of service. There's some services that are more important than others. Most of us would go, go, go for Peter. You take him out, you're really going to cripple the church. You know what the enemy thought? Who's the greatest threat right now? It's Stephen. The waiter. They took him out because he was a threat. There are no small acts of service in the kingdom. Last point, the the growing. The growing. Verse 7. The beginning says, and the word of God continued to increase. And what we can't see here in the English is is actually a very unique verb that Luke uses here. He says it doesn't literally translated is is growing. The Word of God is growing. It's an agricultural term. It's a farmer's term. And what a lot of commentators have suggested is this is a reference back to the parable of the sower. Do you remember the parable of the sower? There's a guy who goes out into a field and he starts to sow seed. And what does the seed represent? It's the Word of God and some seed falls on the path, some in among the rocks, and others in fertile soil. And what happens to the seed that lands in the fertile soil? It begins to grow and bear fruit. It does what it's supposed to do. And, and notice what's, what's happening here in verse 7 is that fruit is being produced. Numbers are increasing, and, and not just ordinarily but greatly. And this is despite persecution. In, in verse 5, Peter and the disciples, they're thrown into prison. So even despite persecution, the church is growing. Last week we looked at the story of Ananias and Sapphira, right? They kept money back. They held, they held money back. They lied to the Holy Spirit. They deceived their community. The church is growing. It's thriving even despite corruption, internal corruption, right? And the third test, as, as, as one commentator calls it in this passage, As the church is growing and it's thriving, even in the midst of distractions, right? The apostles can't do it all. They've got to give this authority away. They've got to come up with a good system that's going to solve this problem so that the gospel can go forth. And they do. And it does. And it flourishes. And it grows. Luke would even go as, as far to say that, maybe you saw this at the end of verse 7, that many priests became obedient to the faith. Well, why would he include that? Why kind why of like, as a narrator, just kind of include that little interesting fact about the priests? Well, in John's gospel, he records a conversation with the high priests, Caiaphas and others. And they kind of boast and they brag and they ask this rhetorical question to the crowds that are coming to them about this new Jesus, this guy who is preaching a little bit different gospel than what they understood to be traditional Judaism, right? And here's what they say and here's what they brag uh, to the crowds. Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? In other words, have any of the higher-ups, the really important people in this economy believed in this Jesus Christ? Answer being, no, they have not. You know what Luke is saying in this in this passage? You spoke too soon. Because they are, and not by the dozens and not by the hundreds, but by the thousands, even priests. Once enemies of Jesus Christ, once enemies of the church, they're now being welcomed to the fold. It's growing. And it's bearing fruit. Why? It's because the apostles are doing what they're supposed to be doing, praying and preaching. These seven are doing what they're supposed to be doing, taking care of the widows overseeing the tables and the daily distribution. Everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing. You, me, everyone. And when we start doing that, that's when the church really starts to hum. That's when the church really starts to grow. Everyone in this room, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a minister, just as I am a minister, just as Tim and Adam soon will be. You just minister in different ways. And the areas of the city that we could never get to. That's why we need you. Um, let me close uh, with this. Um, this past week uh, was a week of... of There's a lot of celebration, let me put it this way, in the, in the Patent House this past week. We, of course, had, you know, Valentine's Day on Tuesday, and that in and of itself is, is a very important day, a celebration. Um, but Paige's birthday is the day after. Her birthday is the 15th. And I always buy her flowers the day after her birthday. And I'm that guy walking through the checkout line with like two dozen roses and the lady at the register always like looks at me with a scowl like you realize valentine's was yesterday right no today's her birthday oh okay my bad Paige's birthday was wednesday mine was yesterday fyi it's not too late could slide something over the door over there just kidding no i'm not just kidding just kidding uh, it was a week of celebration, and so um, we decided, okay, Thursday night was going to be our, we're going we're to celebrate Valentine's, both of our birthdays, Thursday night, even, even you know, a, a couple in the church said, we're going to watch your kids, we've got them, y'all, y'all cut loose. So we went to a little bit nicer restaurant than we would normally go to and enjoy, and of course, the food was just, you know, absolutely fantastic, but what really made the night was our waiter, was Cody, and he, he had that balance. He nailed it perfectly. He wasn't like the hover kind of waiter that's like always in your bubble, always in your peripheral vision, just like, "Hey man, I just kind of, just feel like you're watching me. This feels kind of creepy. Like, back up." Didn't do that. Nor was he kind of like the hands-off, like you know, don't, you know, if you need something, just wave and then I'll come. He just he had a gift and he nailed it. He, he was he was the perfect waiter. And when the meal was done and the ticket came, Paige's natural impulse. Her natural reaction was, please leave him a, a good tip. And it was like, yeah, no-brainer, right? This guy deserves a really good tip. Why? Because he has served us so well. We want to serve him well. You know what the difference between services and Christian service? Real, genuine Christian service? Average, normal, everyday service is this. Do good things, because Christians are supposed to do good things, and Jesus says, do good things. Now, go do good things. Service is kind of told out of a vacuum, out of, out of nowhere, but Christian service is different. It has a rich backstory, and that backstory is the service of Jesus Christ. Why do we serve? Why do we use our spiritual gifts? Why do we think about others highly, and, and more importantly, than we think about ourselves? It's because Jesus Christ, in his public ministry for 33 years, emptied himself of his glory, as Philippians says, and did what? Took the form of a servant. Grab your bulletin for a second. Open back up to the assurance of pardon on the second page of your bulletin. We don't do this all the time, but I chose this as the assurance of the gospel this week because I wanted it incorporated in the sermon. There's two sentences there. Look at the last sentence. For the Son of Man came not to what? Though he be God incarnate, he did not come to be served, although he should have been. He's worthy of it. He did not come to be served, but to do what? To serve. There's our word again, diakoneo. I did not come to be served by you, but instead I came to offer my service to you. When people were hungry because they'd been following him all day and they were too far from home now, To provide themselves a meal. What did he do? He took their meager provisions. He prayed and he blessed it. And he distributed it to the crowds and to the multitudes. Because he cared for them. And because they were hungry. Food is a small service in some ways. Others came to him because they had fevers, diseases. They were full of unclean spirits. And one by one, he touched every one of them in the cities. And he healed them of their diseases. He healed them of their unclean spirits. Why? Because he had compassion on them. Because he didn't come to be served, but to serve. And when his disciples were in the upper room, he took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and he did what servants do. He washed the disciples' feet. Why? Because he did not come to be served, but he came to serve. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, you have received a service of cosmic proportions, of divine proportions. You have been served in a way that your mind cannot even comprehend or understand. The God of all creation, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, and the end, has washed your feet, though he need not. And though you are undeserving, and though I am undeserving, he has served you with a cosmic service. With a cosmic hospitality. And like my wife's impulse when we got the ticket was let's do something nice back, right? Let's reciprocate. So, too, as Christians, when we've been served by God Himself, when we've had provisions made for us at tables and spiritually within our own hearts, what is our natural inclination? What turns service into Christian service? It's not coming out of a vacuum. It's not coming out of a void. It's a response to God's service to us. Because God has done this to me, me and us, the church, who are so undeserving, I now want to do it for others as well. Right? That's the difference. Don't hear another sermon of like, well, there's the pastor up there, the talking head, going out and do more. Thanks. That's discouraging. That's not good news. You have been served by the God and the creator of the universe. Your physical needs have been taken care of the very food on your tables, but he has also robbed you of death and the wrath of the Father. He's given you everything you need for life and for godliness. Now go out and serve others. That's what we're jumping from. That's why we serve. That's real Christian service, is it not? Let's pray that the Lord would do this among us and through us. Let's pray together.